Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. It won't surprise you to learn that Alexander Payne, the Oscar-winning writer and director, is a fan of movies. He's got a huge collection of silent films. He can quote the classics and the obscure cult favorites. He also has a six-month-old daughter, though. But don't worry. He's got a routine. Uh, my wife likes to sleep in, so, you know, to like eight or nine. So I've got the baby from six till eight or nine. And, you know, we, I feed her and play and then we watch a movie. So I'm happy to say that her first movie we, we carved through this morning, this week was The Dirty Dozen. And she loved it. She loved watching the Jerry's get what was coming to him. Babies love a good shootout. It's Bullseye. Coming up, Alexander Payne. He'll talk with me about his movie Downsizing, his childhood obsession with films, and The Descendants, a beautifully shot, nuanced, and Academy Award-nominated family drama. And the number one question I got from reporters or journalists, or whatever you call people who ask you about film when you're done, was, how did you get George Clooney to run funny? Just comes natural, I guess. Then, a real treat. Eugene Levy, one of the funniest people of all time. But ask him, and he will say to you, completely sincerely, no false humility, he doesn't see himself as funny. When I'm around my funny friends, I'm laughing all the time. That's basically it. I do the laughing, they do the comedy. I I don't turn everything into a comedy bit. People that think funny do that. You'll also hear from another extraordinarily funny person, director Kay Cannon. She'll tell us about the craziest day of her entire career. And then I'll tell you about one of the most moving works of art I've seen, a collection of lost bird posters. It's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My first guest this week is Alexander Payne. Payne, of course, is an incredibly accomplished writer and director. His movies include Citizen Ruth, About Schmidt, Nebraska, Sideways, and, of course, Election. I believe in the voters. They understand that elections aren't just popularity contests. They know this country was built by people just like me who work very hard and don't have everything handed to them on a silver spoon. His latest film is Downsizing, which is available to buy in stores and online now. It's kind of Payne's first foray into science fiction in a way. The movie centers on Paul and Audrey, an average couple from Omaha, played by Matt Damon and Kristen Wiig. In an effort to combat overpopulation and global warming, a technology has been invented that shrinks people down to a size of about five inches. But of course, things don't go exactly as planned. Here's a bit of the beginning of the movie. Paul and Audrey are sitting down with a salesperson from a downsizing company or like a downsizing retirement community called Leisureland. And she's giving them the rundown. Taking a look at your current debt, your retirement, and your other savings, you are at $152,000 in equity. People, that is a very comfortable number. Comfortable? That doesn't sound like nearly enough. Yeah. Oh, no. 
See, you have to look at this column, Audrey, equivalent value. In Leisure Lynn, your $152,000 translates to $12.5 million to live on for life. I mean, come on. Wow. So, what do you think? Would the Regency level be your first choice, or should I show you something a little more deluxe? Honey, why don't you just go ahead and pick? I just want you to be happy. <sighs> That's a good husband. Take a look at this. Alexander Payne, welcome to Bullseye. I'm so happy to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. I was uh, Googling around your name and whatnot, and I found this article from the LA Times from 1990 um, when you had just your, – your student film was just making the rounds on VHS of agents – and development people and stuff like that. Did you have a plan to get to that uh, when you were a young man? I think you were in your late 20s then. Yeah, I was 29 when I graduated from film school. Um, no, I I came to film step by step by step. So, But specifically about your question, when I got out of film school in 1990 and had a hit student film, that's all I saw. That's what I hoped for. I didn't know what was going to happen after that, although I hoped that uh, a first feature would happen soon thereafter. But when you're a, a film student, particularly a graduate student, uh, one of the advantages of uh, uh, making a thesis film there is that it will be presented in a certain context and with certain packaging when you graduate. And then you hope for uh, interest. And I had a lot of interest. I had kind of the dream uh, film school graduate MFA scenario, which is I presented my film at, in that June at the UCLA uh, end-of-the-year screenings. And the next day I had 30, 40 messages on my answering machine. And within a month I had a Hollywood agent and an office on a lot and a writing-directing deal. And that's rare, much hoped for and rare. And I, uh, what you really can't plan for is that they always tell you, and even still later in life, I mean, this, this is something which continues throughout life. If you have a hit film, have a script ready for what you want to do next. And they drum that into the heads of, of graduate students. And if, but no, almost nobody does that because you're so busy working on your thesis film and editing all night and then getting it, you know – just getting it done that you really don't have time to to write that feature script. I had an idea and I pitched that idea, but I that idea did not materialize as a feature until 11 years later it became about Schmidt. So when and how did you decide to pursue this path, this career? As I said before, I came to it bit by bit. I fell in love with movies when I was about five, watching them and uh, – uh, becoming very, very keen to see as many movies as I could, particularly old movies, and I would seek them out on television. So, uh, I mean, did you did you have like a, a rep house nearby, a university theater or something sometimes? Had many things. Films were available on television. Um, I had an 8-millimeter projector, which my father had gotten from his restaurant business as a bonus from Kraft Foods, and I began collecting uh, prints of silent films at around age 8. All my uh, allowance money went to that, and by the time I was in my teens, it was a pretty good collection. And Because, they, because the projector didn't have a, uh, wasn't capable of generating sound? Correct. So you could also get 
silent versions of sound films. There used to be a company called Castle Films, and you'd get them at the camera store. And that's good for little kids. You'd get like a 12-minute version of Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein or something like that. But I soon, but by the time I was 12, I, I had uh, all of uh, Charlie Chaplin's mutual shorts and uh, Buster Keaton shorts. And I had, you know, you'd buy from a place called Blackhawk Films in Davenport, Iowa. Anyway, I don't want to bore you with that. I love it. Were you like right? Were you like getting your parents to write a check and taking it to the post box? I saved my allowance money, and I would go to the drugstore and buy money orders. Yeah. <laughs> and the drugstore, our local drugstore, also had a post office, so I could buy a money order, send it off, all right there. Uh, as far as a rep house goes in Omaha, there's a great museum called the Jocelyn Art Museum, and every Sunday for many years, one guy would curate. Uh, 16 millimeter reduction prints of classic films. And for many years, I went every single Sunday. I missed one. Um, and what did then, you miss the one for? Uh, somehow my parents couldn't take me. I still remember the film, I'm No Angel. Check it out there. Do you think that your sensibilities were shaped at all by the fact that you watched all these silent films as a young man and that you were not just, I mean, like, not just that you watched them, but also that you. That you, you had to like, they were, they must have been treasured possessions because you had to buy them yourself, like save money and send away for them and all of that stuff. Absolutely correct. And they became my first film school because, as you say, I owned them. I watched them over and over and over again and brought friends up into the attic where I had a screen set up and my little projection set up. And sometimes I even, uh, in the basement, would open the house to neighbor kids and charge a quarter to get in, and my parents would make popcorn and do that. So I wound up watching these films over and over and over again. I like that you were uh, becoming a service industry entrepreneur, uh, like your parents. Uh, like your, your, your father owned a big restaurant downtown when right. you were very young. Um, like that that was your – it was like a, a weird hustle – it's like, hey, what other children want to see the passion of Joan of Arc? Well, I didn't have passion of Joan of Arc, but... <laughs> Might have been a little too I, I real. Have, I have to say, it was more fun, though, but my, my motives were perhaps purer. You just wish to share these things, to share the joy of those films. And uh, they've continued to influence me, I think, to this day. I mean, as, as uh, I mean, I make talkies. I don't make silent films. But as spoken, as as verbal as some of my films are, actually... As a director, I'm more interested in in uh, wordless passages and how bodies move in space, and um, both from watching silent films and also you learn this from Warner Brothers cartoons. The key is to be able, even though if your movie is a talkie, a deaf person or someone without, if you if you could turn down the volume on the film, could an audience member still tell more or less what's going on? That's still a good arbiter of uh, how good a movie is you want it you know it's moving pictures i remember hearing you tell terry gross years ago on fresh air not that many years ago five years ago maybe um that you like that you are an enthusiastic uh talker when you are directing including when the cameras are rolling and will talk people through physical things that you want to see on camera while while they perform which isn't i mean it's it's not extraordinarily unusual but it's not everyone's um method the only thing i'm missing is the megaphone 
Uh-huh. <laughs> the handheld megaphone. You have the, no, but a lot you of have people, the riding pants the, and the safari jacket. Uh, they're called jodhpurs. Okay, thank you. The jodhpurs. Uh, but that's – I think it's more common I – mean, as you say, it's not extraordinarily uncommon. But a lot of directors will, will talk people through or, or certainly nowadays where you can keep the camera running for a long time. You know, all right, try that again but do it this way or try to get it – yeah. Because, I mean, in downsizing, there is a lot of silence. I mean, for a guy who makes a lot of talky movies, there's a lot of time spent, um, you know, in the – in the first act of the film, as we learn about this downsizing process, there's a lot of time spent watching machines move around and watching people. Uh, the the bit that I remember the most vividly is after everyone gets small, they have to go from a full-size hospital bed to a tiny hospital bed or gurney maybe. And there's a scene where they get swept into uh, a, sp- a spatula. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say a pooper scooper <laughs> with no bag. <laughs> but yeah, either way. <laughs> well, thanks for pointing that out because that's my favorite scene in the film. Really? And, oh, it was the most fun to design and to direct and to score. The music it turned out quite nice. And it's just a nice little, uh, it's about eight minutes, just a nice little ballet of, uh, of a medical procedure. I mean, it seems like you took a great amount of pleasure, especially for someone who had spent uh, from what I understand, like a decade working on this script, um, a great amount of pleasure in the uh, in the non-talking mechanical parts of this and human parts, but the silent, uh, the non-dialogue parts. Look, I made a movie called uh, I don't know what the name of it, the, uh, the Descendants with George uh-huh. with George Clooney. It's called The Descendants with yeah. George Clooney. It takes place in Hawaii. And there's a lot of uh, emoting, and here's a guy, his wife was uh, cuckolding him, and she's now dying, and he's got to take care of these daughters, and he's got a land trust to deal with, and all the stuff you need uh, to talk about, and that's what the meat of the film is. And the number one question I got from reporters or journalists, or whatever you call people who ask you about film when you're done, was, how did you get George Clooney to run funny? (laughs) <laughs> there's a, a, a silent sequence where he realizes he's he's been his wife's been unfaithful and he runs to friends and it's a I made a sequence of that you know in the script it just said he runs down the street but I made a, kind of a meal about it and that's the number one question I got how did you get George Clooney to run so funny so people fall for that crap um, are, do you think you're still as serious a um, film consumer now as you were when you were a teenager or a student? Right now it comes in spurts. But yes, I, I watch a lot of film, even if I don't watch them all the way through. Uh, and I keep up with films, older films mostly. Uh, but for example, when I'm making a film, it's kind of hard to, to keep a steady diet of watching them. Uh, I have a six-month-old baby right now, and it's been – oh, I – but wait, get a load of this. So I do morning shift with the baby. Uh, my wife likes to sleep in, so, you know, to like eight or nine. So I've got the baby from six till eight or nine. And, you know, we, I feed her and play and then we watch a movie. So I'm happy to say that her first movie we, we carved through this morning, this week was The Dirty Dozen. And she loved it. She loved <laughs> watching the Jerry's get what was coming to him. One of the things that you are good at that not very many people are good at as a filmmaker is – being funny and being funny in the context of a film where 
being funny is not the sole goal. Um, I think there are plenty of funny movies that are released, and I think that, uh, I mean, we've never met before, but if you knew me, you'd know that I value that very deeply. Humor. I, humor. Yeah. Yeah, big I time. Have a, I have a real fantasy in my head that you cast Will Forte in Nebraska because uh, you thought MacGruber was so great. I've still never seen MacGruber. You should probably watch I mean, MacGruber. I, I, saw, I, saw, I didn't see the movie, which Will Forte said, oh, you should see it. He goes, it's a terrible movie. It's, I, there's nothing good I can tell you about it, but it's funny. What was the thing that I was just saying a second? Oh, there were so humor, few people humor. who even seemed to aspire to make a human emotional film that's funny. Or at least with humor. I yeah. mean, I, when asked about many films, what did you think of this or what did you think of that? Very, very often I say, yeah, it was pretty good, but no jokes. Even 12 Years a Slave, not a single funny moment in it. Otherwise, fine film. But that's when I said, you know what? Excellent film, but no jokes. There has to be some humor, some opening, some something. And I mean, another way I say it is that film, no matter what it's about, should be charming. Again, I, I don't want to say uh, right. what a film should be. I want right. to be, you know, democratic and Catholic about a film can be anything, absolutely anything. But in terms of what we're talking about, you know, two-hour narrative films, at least for my taste, I look for some char- – even Michael Haneke's Amour has humor and charm. Even Schindler's List has humor and charm. You can kind of do anything, but at some point – give us a break, man. Just let us in. You know, in your career, as you mentioned, you had an un- you had an unusual path in that you had a successful film in film school, a successful student film that got you work, and you know, a, a ball has apparently, at least from the outside, been rolling ever since then. Um, and not quite that easy, but I'll, 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 yeah, not quite that easy. But go ahead. I, I guess I just wonder uh, if you feel some. If you feel some pressure to keep that ball rolling, like if you're the kind of guy who can rest or remove yourself or, it's hard. for that matter, fail. It's hard. Uh, well, look, it's not that you have pressure to keep the ball rolling. It's that you want to keep making movies. There is nothing more delightful. It's a joy. It's a, And even like that, we're here to promote downsizing. Downsizing didn't do so well. It didn't, it didn't have good box office. It got some stinky reviews. Whatever, you know, next. I got a next movie in me. Uh, so I, And uh, another part of that I would say is, well, I mentioned I have a six-month-old kid. That's forced me, right when Downsizing finished, by the way, uh, that's forced me to take a break. Although I'm inside, I'm chomping at the bit like, God, why can't I have those like three hours to myself to – The other way it's a drag when is uh, – it. Uh, I used to be quite a voracious reader – when you start making films, you have to turn off that part of your brain. It's very hard to say, could this be a movie? Could this be a movie? And I often don't read books because I think, oh, they already, made that in- <laughs> they already made that into a movie. I should spend my time reading things which – now, I don't – of course, I still read literature and try to keep, you know, catch up on the greats and so forth. But you've got that always going in your brain. When you're in film, your your brain is always set to some – frequency 24 hours a day was it scary when downsizing was less successful than your past films you know 
Uh, I wouldn't say scary. Is it a little disappointing? Sure, because of the amount of work, not just I, but a lot of people put into it. And, you know, also just as far as career management goes, you want you don't want anybody around you. To, you know, Hyman Roth always made money for his partners. I mean, you the know. thing that the thing that it makes me think of is just the extent to which, as a filmmaker, you are dependent upon convincing people to give you tens of millions of dollars of their money to spend, um, which is, you know, I mean, I, we're sitting here and I own this studio. It costs three thousand um, dollars. You know. Well, if they don't spend it on that, they're just going to spend it on something else. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and even though downsizing was disappointing at the box office, no one will sleep between sheets any less fine or order any less hamachi collar, you know, at the sushi bar. They'll get through it. It's a company. Now, and that's not – I don't wish to be flippant about that. I always want my pictures to make some money. Why, do I care about their – uh, bank accounts, no. I care about my ability to continue making movies. So you got to keep that going. Uh, scary, no. Um, disappointing, yes. But, you know, back to the old drawing board. You know, you can, and look, every filmmaker, you just keep it. Look at Robert Altman's career. I mean, forget the cost of downsizing, but he just kept working. And some, or Woody Allen, some hit, some don't, but you're interested in the activity. Well, I am so grateful that you took all this time to come be on Bullseye. It was really nice to meet you, and I've so admired your films for so many years. Thanks a lot, and I'm happy to visit you guys in your awesome – they have an, a, a, an office here above MacArthur Park in Los Angeles with a phenomenal view. And your producer outside said that you guys have to move offices, so I'm, I'm happy I got to see this one. And come see us in Chinatown, knock on wood. Oh, good. That's cool. Thank you, Alexander. Thank you. Alexander Payne. Downsizing is available to buy in stores now. You can also rent or buy it online pretty much anywhere. More bullseye after a quick break. When we return, Kay Cannon tells us about the craziest day of her entire career. And the legendary Eugene Levy talks about SCTV, Christopher Guest, his hit new show with a name we can't say on the radio without spelling out the title, and more. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Hey, it's Guy Raz here, host of the TED Radio Hour. And on this week's episode, turning kids into grown-ups, and how despite our best efforts, we may still be doing it wrong. You can listen to the TED Radio Hour on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts. Support for Bullseye and the following message come from Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. In 1980, with a few thousand dollars and used dairy equipment, Ken Grossman founded Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Ken's award-winning ales propelled him from home brewer to craft brewer. Today, Ken and his family still own 100% of the company, one of the most successful independent craft breweries in America. More at SierraNevada.com. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Time now for one of our favorite Bullseye segments, the craziest day of my entire career. This week's guest is Kay Cannon. She started in comedy as a writer. For five years, she worked on 30 Rock, Uh, becoming eventually a supervising producer. From there, she worked on New Girl on Fox, and she created the Netflix show Girl Boss. She also wrote all three of the Pitch Perfect movies, some of the biggest comedy hits of the last decade. Now, she's directed her first film ever. It's called 
Blockers. It's a coming-of-age teen comedy for the post-bridesmaids generation. Three teen girls make a pact to lose their virginity on prom night. And their parents, played by Leslie Mann, Ike Barinholtz, and John Cena, will do everything they can to stop it. I have seen every single Fast and the Furious movie, okay? All of them, dozens of times. Have you seen any of them? I saw the Tokyo one, and I saw the one where the rock punches the torpedo. Those are the best two to see. Okay, in times like this, I ask myself one question. WWVDD, you know what that means? What would Vin Diesel do? No one's ever gotten that before, okay. What we're gonna do, we're gonna kiss the bumper. You give it a little tap and then okay. they're gonna spin and stop and we're gonna spin and stop the other way and okay. we're gonna look at each other and we're gonna go, it's all about the family. Wait, I don't feel comfortable running the kids off the road. This slow and unfurious attitude is not helping us. You have to believe. Okay. Kiss it. Anyway, when we asked Kay about the craziest day of her entire career, she had a pretty great one lined up. I'll let her take it from here. The start of the 24 hours of my craziest day is in San Francisco. I am the showrunner and creator of a show called Girl Boss that we were shooting for Netflix. And we were shooting on the Golden Gate Bridge. And it was raining. And so they only let, like, including the actress... They would only let six other people on the bridge um, with her. So we'd have, like, sound guy, camera guy, the driver uh, in this little car, and then me. We're in a a little sidecar that we put the camera in the back of. And we are, uh, the the scene was that um, Sophia, who's the girl boss, she is holding a wedding dress and she has to run across the entire bridge to get this wedding dress to a customer on the other side. So... It was windy and crazy, and I'm in I'm in this little car. I'm able to hear uh, Britt Robertson, who played Sophia, in the back, doing being really funny, and I'm able to like tell her, like give her jokes and things to do. And so she's running, and I'm going like, "Say you have a body cramp," you know. And I'm hearing her go like, "Body cramp, body cramp." And the driver was like. Um, I've been driving people around on this bridge. I've worked this bridge for like 18 years. And he's like, I've seen all sorts of things. <laughs> Obviously talked about suicides, but a, puppy, a lot of people jumping to their deaths. But then he said, in between takes, he says, um, the craziest thing I saw was when somebody pulled over in the car and a guy pulled out a guy and threw him over the bridge. <laughs> So I'm like, oh, so murder. You've seen murder. Okay, and then let's do another one, Britt. (laughs) While I was doing Girl Boss, there was some overlap with me directing Blockers, and I was casting the movie while also shooting Girl Boss. So I knew I wanted John Cena to be to play Mitchell, but the producers needed to be convinced, so they John had to come and audition. Well, I was in San Francisco, and so Good Universe was like, it's really important based on, we need to get John in and get, get him cast, you know, see his audition. So we're going to fly you private. The same day that I'm on the Golden Gate Bridge, that night, I am being flown private back to L.A., And then John was coming from Australia, and then he was going to do his audition, and then I was going to fly private back to San Francisco so that I was there, you know, the next day. 
So all the cast and crew at Girl Boss are just like, "Woo, you get to fly private. How awesome is this?" Or whatever. And I'm a nervous flyer. I do not like to fly at all. So the, I, even the idea of like flying private, being fancy, was not interesting to me. And I've gotten much better about it now. I have. I was so afraid of flying. Large part because I didn't fly until I was a freshman in college. I'm from a very, very small town. Like we never, I'm the fifth of seven kids. We never could afford to have all those plane tickets. <laughs> My fear is actually not dying. My fear is that I'll be in the bathroom, and I'll get unexpected turbulence, and I will hit my head on something and die that way, or get a concussion or something with my pants down, and have just like and just be found that way. I just didn't. I never want to be found. <laughs> I don't want to be found that way. <laughs> <laughs> and that kind of that almost happened to me like four years ago. My husband and I were flying to Key West, and I don't know if you remember this. It was kind of in the news where there was all these like tornadoes that went through Florida, and so I was in the bathroom just peeing, and it, we had crazy unexpected turbulence. Ladies and gentlemen, the captain has turned on the fasten seatbelt sign. We're encountering some My husband was standing outside waiting to, you know, we both decided to go to the bathroom at the same time. And I just peed all over myself. And it's, it's one of those things where you're just like flaring, you know, like you're just like holding on to the side. And, and then I open up the door. He's a little pale because it, I mean, it was it was scary. It was like things like the open uh, overhead bins like opened up and things fell out. And the uh, cart had like gone, uh, <laughs> like f- fell to the back. And I said, I just peed all over myself, and it's all over my uh, pants. And he gave me his sweater, and I wrapped it around me, and he's like, just walk. And he didn't even go to the bathroom, and, and he walked me back uh, to my seat. That was pretty terrible. So I have this wild time on the Golden Gate Bridge. I get driven, like, really fancy car pull up into the airport where, and I see the plane that uh, is going to take me to Los Angeles. It is like a four-seater and there's no bathrooms. Which, to someone who's afraid of flying, is, this is like catastrophic news to me. <laughs> right? So then I don't have to go through security. I'm like, I'm in the... Um, you know, in the waiting area, and I see this old man that I think is a little bit feeble sitting there waiting. And the woman I checked in with, she's like, "Oh, it's time. the The captain is is here, and you know, everybody's ready to to fly." And the old feeble man is the pilot. I get on the plane and I'm like, so there's no bathrooms? And and he's like, no, there's no bathrooms. He goes, do you want anything to drink? And there was just like a little cooler, like a little blue tiny cooler that you would bring like on a picnic or like on the beach or something. And he opens it up and there's like vodka and there's Pepsi and whatever. And I was like, oh, uh, yeah, I want a lot to drink, actually. I'll have a... (laughs) So I go to make it myself and he's like, no, no, I'll make it for you. The captain of the plane made my drink for me and he's like a little bit of shaky hand... (laughs) So then I land, totally fine. And then the next morning, John Cena comes in. He is He's flown in from Australia. And when John walks in, he, you know, he's a big guy, right? And and I immediately go for a hug, though. Like, I don't know what I was thinking. I was like, hey, John. And I go in for a hug. And he's like, ma'am. 
like not having it. Like no, like my arms are out and his were not. And so I, I backed up and I didn't hug him. I don't know what I was thinking. I just thought that I, I thought it was like an actory thing where like we we all kind of hug each other and seem closer than what we actually are. He says to me, like, um, so okay. I have uh, just flown in from Australia. I had five minutes with the material. I don't know how good this is going to be. <laughs> Boy, he's like, he was intense. <laughs> you know, like he was intense. He was just all business. And it's, you know, like, because I think he was like, much like myself. I think he was going back on a plane to go, you know, to fly like to, um, he lives in Florida. Well, the first thing that we all said to each other was he was great. Like he was great and he was perfect and he, he was right for the role. So this, it was really like a first for me to be like, uh, and I'm with John Cena, who's this wrestler, and he's very like soldier-esque with me. And, and then back on, onto the fancy plane and then back to Girl Boss. I think that's, it's crazy because I was like, oh my gosh, I'm doing something. Being on the Golden Gate Bridge, I was like, I cannot believe I'm up here. I cannot believe I'm actually doing this. It's, I get to do this for a living. And how exciting that was. It was like so great to utter fear in, a, in an airplane. <laughs> and I felt like on paper, it would look like I was having this amazing Hollywood you know, fancy jet-setting life where I'm being pulled up into, in a nice car right up to the door of the airplane. But in reality, when you're afraid to fly, you think this is terrible. <laughs> this is not. This is not at all exciting. It was a wild ride. Kay Cannon on the craziest day of her entire career. Blockers is in theaters now. It's a lot of fun. Go check it out. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm so excited about the next guest on this week's show, the one and only Eugene Levy. Eugene, of course, is among the heaviest of hitters in the comedy world. Hailing from Toronto, he was a founding member of SCTV, the pioneering sketch comedy show that helped launch the careers of Rick Moranis, Catherine O'Hara, John Candy, and many, many more. He also collaborated with Christopher Guest on pretty much all of that director's movies. He also starred in most of them. He starred in the American Pie movies. Now he's reunited with Catherine O'Hara in the sitcom Schitt's Creek. That's spelled S-C-H-I-T-T, by the way. The show was created by Eugene and his son, Dan. Eugene plays Johnny Rose, the patriarch of a socialite family that lost their fortune. Johnny and his wife, Moira, played by Catherine, head to the last place they can call their own, the backwoods Canadian town that Johnny bought as a gag gift the year before. Together, the family pieces their lives back together. They run a hotel. They get jobs. It's like a mix between Faulty Towers and Green Acres, but it also stars some of the most brilliant minds in comedy. The show's wrapping up its fourth season. It was just renewed for a fifth. Let's listen to a bit of it. Johnny and his wife Moira are in their room in the motel. Johnny pulls the curtains from the window, and he looks out. He's dressed sharp. It finally looks like the family's settling into their new small-town life, only they're about to get some bad news. Ah, now that is what I call a beautiful morning. 
Looks like another full house tonight. Things are starting to look up, sweetheart. Big waves, big waves. Oh, yes. Yes, tidal waves of prosperity are crashing down all around us. Soon enough. You just wait. Hey, partner, what's the good word? There's a dead guy in room four. What? What do you mean there's a dead guy in room... Come in, come in. Did I hear what I think I heard? Has someone been killed? No. No! No, John, no! No! I have endured a cornucopia of trauma the last few years. I draw the line at living in a crime scene. Okay, nobody's been murdered, Mrs. Rose. I went into clean room four, and this old guy was, like, asleep in his bed. But, like, forever asleep. Like, checked out without pain asleep. <laughs> There's a scene... There's a scene where Catherine O'Hara's character, you, you're asked, you, you're going to move out of your rooms to make room for this dead body, basically, in this same episode in Catherine O'Hara's character. You declare that it's not possible because that you don't have the staff to rebox her wigs. Yeah. And she says they simply don't have the skills. <laughs> yes. But after she said they simply don't have the skills, you notice my son David raised his hand as if to say, I do know how to box a wig. But conversation went on. Uh, Eugene Levy, I'm so happy to have you on the show. Thank you for coming in. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, I have to say that I worked with my father when I was a young man. Uh, Wasn't a pleasant experience? Eugene... I love my father very Wouldn't much. Wouldn't want to do I, it twice? I, I want to be clear that I love my father, who yeah, is a great goes without man. Saying. I'm so grateful to everything he gave me in this life, including a job when I was 23 years old and indigent. However, no, it was a nightmare. It was a horrible nightmare. And yeah. I get along okay with my dad in general, but it was a horrible nightmare. Yeah, that's like having your dad teach you to drive. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, mistake. It's a mistake. Go to a driving school or yeah. somebody with a better temperament for that kind of thing. Eugene, did you pitch this to your son or did your son pitch this to you or was this like a weird Thanksgiving conversation? So when he came to me and said, uh, you know, I have an idea I've been thinking of. Do you want to work with me on it uh, for, for a, t- a TV idea? I was really kind of shocked. I mean, I was – more than shocked, but I thought, "How? Wow, what a wonderful thing this could be!" So that's how I went into it as a wonderful father-son <clears throat> experience. This is going to be just great, you know. And then I kind of woke up in a cold sweat one night uh, uh, and bolted up in bed, thinking, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! What <laughs> if he doesn't have it? What if he's not that good a writer?" You know, once I realized that he can carry the ball and carry it better than I can, uh, I just stepped, you know, back. We started show running this thing together in our first year. And when I realized that he had all the skills and, you know, more skills in that department than I did to carry on with the show, then, then you know, by all means, he just – he. Uh, uh, took over in second year, took over the writer's room, and, and um, which was good for me because I didn't want to spend 10 hours in a writer's room every day. Um, but, um, yeah, it's been, it's been, it's been really, uh, really a lovely experience. When you were a kid and a teenager, did you think of your own parents as funny? Um, 
No, not funny, funny like pro funny, like like comedy funny. Uh, my mom was um, was kind of you know quirky. She was born in Glasgow, and she had um, her personality was funny. Your mother was from Glasgow. My stepmother is from Belfast, and I feel like there is something particular about the sense of humor of a person who has grown up where it is always dark and cold. Like, not like cold, 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 but just the way that it is today in Los Angeles. Just there's never quite enough light and there's always a little bit too much water. There's no... Oh, in Belfast. Yeah. Yeah. I think the same in Glasgow to uh, some extent, I think... Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, Glasgow is not... I think it's the weather there is not... You know, it's not... It's not Greece. Um... But I think that's the the I think that's probably the uh, the the uh, the view that that most Americans have of Canada. Actually, that it's just this cold, bleak place. And why do so many funny people come out of Canada? Um, when in reality, it's yeah, it is kind of cold and bleak. I mean, it, there's no getting around that. But the sun does shine every now and then, and, and it does get hot. And you know, and if you love humidity, that's a that's a good thing too. But you know, it ain't California. <laughs> well, I think there's, to some extent, when it's beautiful outside, you don't have to be interesting. You can just go and go to the beach or whatever. No one has to entertain yeah. each other because everyone is just soaking up rays and quaffing a brew. Yeah. Well, it's hard to believe that really funny people actually came from Southern California, <laughs> you know, because yeah. it, I get what you're saying. I get what you're saying. You know, when it's cold and rainy outside, you got to do something to, you know, to uh, entertain or to keep things going. I think that's probably um, sort of depression's role is to really to darken the heart of a Southern young, young child from Southern California that they may grow up to be yeah. funny. Yeah. Well, something has to kick in to make them, you know, funny. Comedy comes out of, you know, how many comedians have said that come out come, comes out of a kind of a dark, tragic place, and that's not 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 always true because it's, it's. I mean, it's, it certainly wasn't true in my case. But then again, maybe I'm not that funny. <laughs> <laughs> maybe I'm not. Um, and actually, I'm not. That's the, the as a, oh, you know. Give me, as a, a, give me a break, no. Eugene. Hold hey. on. Hey, wait. No, no, no. Hi, no. I'm here. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm here with not no, that no. funny comedy no, no, legend, no. Eugene, uh, Eugene no, Levy. No. I can. I, I, no, but you know what I'm saying as a person. When I'm around my funny friends, I'm laughing all the time. Uh, that's basically it. I do the laughing. They do the comedy. You know, but I'm I'm not as a as a as a kind of a person. I don't grow up thinking, "Ooh, what's the funniest thing I can think of now?" I I don't turn everything into a comedy, you know, into a comedy bit. People that think funny do that. That's their that's why they're you know they're being paid to do that. I mean, I never had the guts to go into stand up comedy. I went into improv theater, where if I'm going down. I want to take some people with me. (laughs) (laughs) My interview with the great Eugene Levy continues after the break. Still to come, he'll tell me all about the time he was asked to star in American Pie and why he almost said no to one of the most important roles in his career. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for Bullseye and the following message come from ZipRecruiter. Are you hiring? Every business needs great people and a better way to find them. Something better than posting your job online and waiting for the right people to see it. 
ZipRecruiter can help. Their technology identifies people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash bullseye. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. It's Lulu Miller, and I am back with a new story for Invisibilia. It is about the pleasures. It's just electric. And the dangers. There's just nothing more scary. Of trying to live between two worlds. You can find Invisibilia on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Eugene Levy. He stars in the TV show Schitt's Creek. That's S-C-H-I-T-T, which is wrapping up its fourth season now on the Pop Network. Creek is C-R-E-E-K. I want to play a sketch from SCTV, uh, of w- which you were one of the stars of, obviously. And um, I think this is both one of your great, um, one of your great straight man performances, and also just one of the funniest sketches. Just the end. One of the funniest sketches. <laughs> um, it's called Half Wits. Oh, yes. <laughs> and I, I read secondhand that you wrote it, but was is that the case? Uh, yes, I did. I wrote uh, I wrote all the halfwits, um, and the character that I did, which was kind of an Alex Trebek. Yeah, um, his name's like Alex Tremaine or Tre- something like that. Alex Trebell. Yeah, I think we we called my character, so nobody would know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and originally, we there was a sketch on uh, an SCTV in our first season, I believe. It was called High Q. It was a high school game show that where I played. Alex uh, Trebell, um, and that was written by Catherine O'Hara, uh, where the host kind of loses, you know, loses it as the as the 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 contestants were just so insane and so ridiculously dumb that he would he would just lose it and go insane. So that was written by Catherine, and then I came up with. You know, halfwits based on the same host, Alex Trebell, and the same premise that it's the contestants that are driving him nuts. I mean, it's a, it is like literally the simplest sketch premise you could possibly have, which is instead of being smart, the contestants are dumb. Um, the category in this, uh, it's like it's set up like Jeopardy, and the category that we're about to hear is European cuisine. I'm looking for one culinary dish. From each of the following countries. First, Italy. Italy? Um, Could it be cheese omelets? Cheese omelets. Unbelievable. No, I'm sorry. That answer is incorrect. Alex! People, do not wave your hands. Use your bells. Please use your bells. Use your bells, please. Thank you. Darren Peel. Is it Sparabs? Sparrows. No, I'm sorry. That answer is incorrect. I'm looking for a dish from Italy. Lawrence Orbach. Swedish meatballs. Swedish meatballs. Lawrence, can I ask you a question? Where the hell do you think Swedish meatballs come from? Arthur Andrew Liggett. Spain. (laughs) Well... (laughs) It was uh, really something. I, I uh, uh, the most fun to the most fun to play. Obviously, are people that aren't the sharpest pencils 
in the drawer, and I got a chance to do what I love doing, reacting off those funny people. You, I mean, what, what I love about watching it, I, I just watched it before we walked in here, is the specificity of each dumbness. Like <laughs> each each cast member has finely honed a very particular type of idiocy. Yeah, well, degrees of confidence, <laughs> I think, it's yeah. in terms of how dumb they are and how confident they are and how dumb, not dumb, they think they are. I grew up loving the uh, Saturday Night Live uh, Celebrity Jeopardy sketches, which are the same premise. And I was gratified to read... Uh, yes, one might call that... A lift? <laughs> Let's call it an, an homage. Yes. Well, that was the Norm. That was the Norm Macdonald uh, thing. That you know that whole thing that came out where you know the that the, where Norm admitted that in a that in a pitch he pitched the idea for this game show, one where he does Burt Reynolds and that yeah. thing where the, the contestants are dumb and the, yeah. And he said, and I knew it was right right off uh, half wits from. From SCTV, but I didn't care because it was funny. <laughs> he also and he he admitted that. In, he in he his... also claims he waited for Martin Short mm. to be a guest on the show, uh, so he could run it by him before they started doing That's it. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. Anyway, it was an homage. <laughs> um, how did you end up in the Second City in Toronto? Uh, well, I auditioned for it. The Second City was uh, came up from Chicago and decided to open a theater in, in Toronto. Had you already uh, done sketch or uh, improv comedy? No. Well, I, I kind of got a taste of it. You know, it's funny. Uh, that, you know, about two years before Second City opened in Toronto, I was doing a movie... It was actually my f <clears throat> first movie that I had done. I was like right out of school. It was called Cannibal Girls. And it was Andrea Martin and myself and some Toronto people. And Ivan Reitman was, was uh, producing and directing. I went to school with Ivan and we were friends. And, um, uh, and it was an improvised movie. And not not a, not improvised well, um, but it was an improvised movie. So we got a bit of experience and kind of working off an outline, and then you know, and then do, doing that, improvising, um, and also on the side. Once we started, when we started that movie, uh, about four four of us, Andrea Martin and two Toronto actors that were in the movie, we decided to form an improv company. Um, and so we'd rehearse, rehearse, rehearse. We never performed anywhere, but we'd, we would get together and rehearse, not knowing what really we were doing. Had anybody it, in the group had any like, training? Yeah, no, <laughs> no. And that's the key point here: no training, and and ending up with an end product not very good. So Second City, yeah, Second City. Well, auditioned for Second City and got in. We all—that's where I—that's I, uh, uh, where I met John Candy and Dan Aykroyd uh, and Valerie Bromfield. And uh, uh, so 
that was the start. And once we get into Second City, I realized that this is once you learn the rules, the ground rules, the comedy rules, that that's when everything started to take shape. Um, uh, that was the best uh, school of comedy for writing or performing. It must have been an incredible feeling to feel like you were really doing something, especially when comedy is so inherently, you know, it's one of those things uh, that you have to convince people is a job. <laughs> you know what I mean? If you're talking to yeah, someone. Yeah, well, you're just funny. How much work can it be? Right. <laughs> I mean, how much work can it be if you think you're funny and you're funny? Then you can be funny. You don't have to. How much work does it actually take? We worked so hard. We were working so hard. That was one of the great things of, of, of in this realization that, that what you were doing is actually great is because we were working so hard. We were just, you know, the hours put in, you know, writing. And we were shooting and writing at the same time, kind of, you know. Um, uh, long hours. and But, uh, you know, we were young and... and uh, we didn't mind the work and the hours. We loved it. We loved what we were doing. But when that realization, when that lightning bolt came and it finally, wow, this is paying off in major dividends because the product is truly great. So my producer, Kevin, is so excited about this clip that I cannot not play it for you. Um and in fact, I think what I will do is I'm going to play this clip. It's of you, my guest, Eugene Levy, and maybe you will recognize it. Maybe you will not. I'm interested to know. But don't mess with my bike hole. Hey, man, what are you doing on my street? No, I'm going to pretend you're just lost or something, daddy-o. Give you till three to beat it or you get stomped. Okay? One? Uh, what comes after one? Okay, okay. One, three, now burn rubber, kid! Wow. I don't have a clue. I First of all, I want to give you credit for really selling some material that may not be the strongest you've ever worked with. What comes after one? Career. <laughs> what comes after one? See, the, the character is dumb, so he it doesn't know the number after one. It had to be uh, many, many years ago because I learned... You can actually fight to give yourself better lines. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Is it an animated thing? No. This is a Philips CD interactive game, which was a video game and and like uh, it was like a CD-ROM based sort of educational video game system that you could rent at Blockbuster Video. And it's a game called The Wacky World of Miniature Golf with Eugene Levy. Oh, yeah. You had you had title credit in there. Wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Maybe I told him to add the word wacky. <laughs> uh after uh after seeing the material. Um I don't yeah, I remember that. The wacky world of miniature golf and it was well yeah, it was a game, but I oh my god. Well, listen, you know, it's work. That's what I was. That's what I was thinking of when I saw this. Eugene Levy has never stopped working. You you work hard. You get gigs and you do them. Well, sometimes you just have to do things that you know. I don't know. 
yeah, that was that. I did another thing uh, up in Canada. Uh, Eugene Levy discovers home safety, and it was just like the same kind of thing, little vignette things about safety that I was done in a day <laughs> or like an afternoon. A lot of stuff. Moving fast. Uh, and a lot of setups. I, you know, I just, you know, they're not, they're not on the uh, bookshelf. You know, they're not, they're not out anywhere. Um, hey, if you are you familiar with a website called YouTube.com? <sighs> People are typing in Eugene Levy's oh home safety. What was it? I can't <laughs> remember. What was it? <laughs> I. I don't know. Was it home? No, no, no. I, maybe it was not. Maybe maybe it was another safety thing. Maybe it was car safety. No. Anyway, don't go looking for it. So you reached a new level of fame, particularly in the United States from the American Pie movies. And I get the impression that you actually had some voice in your character when it came to you. Yeah. Because I can't imagine what it would be like. I mean, retrospectively, you say, oh, like American Pie, that's a generational touchstone. That's one of the biggest comedies of all time, whatever, right? Yeah, yeah, no. But like on the page, it's just a bunch of weird sex situations. (laughs) Yeah. No, no, I can't. I – my manager sent the uh, script in. I looked at the script. So I said, no, I don't want to go in. And finally, it was like I credit my ma- my ma- my then manager, who must have called me like eight, ten times just to say, you should take the meeting. You're you're the only adult in the movie. That's what it came down to. You're the only adult in the movie. And, and uh, you know, this is a good th- thing. And they just want to meet you. And, uh, and so I said, finally, I said, OK. I said, all right, I'll meet them. So I went down and I met Paul and Chris Weitz. And... Uh, and uh, we talked about the thing, and and I said, well, listen, here's the thing, guys. I I don't I I just I don't like the the part. I don't like the role of the dad. I just it's not doing much for me, and it's a it's a really raunchy movie. Listen, I'm sure you guys will do a great job, and it is. And they said, please, please, what don't you like? I said, I don't like anything about it. They said, well, what would you change? I said, I, I'd like to change everything. So they said, well, well, you know what? Now this is they're shooting like in two weeks, and I said. Uh, they said, well, next uh, – come in on Saturday. Would you be willing to come in on Saturday with Jason Biggs, who's playing your son, and we can go through the scenes and just – we can improvise? I said, yeah, OK. OK. All right. So that's what happened. We came in and we started from scene one and we just kind of improvised these scenes and it was – and it felt good. It was like fun working for me. It was kind of funny and they were laughing and – you know, it was it was great. So then, at the end of that, they said, "What do you think? This is what this this is what this is what this can be now." And I said, "Okay." So that was that. Uh, I started the movie, and the first day I got to the set. Normally, you get pages. You get what they call sides. Um, which is the script, uh, the scenes that you're shooting that day, and they're miniaturized so that you can put them in your pocket. And I said, I didn't have any sides. And, and they said, oh, well, there, there must be – let me check with the directors. And then the, and then the AD comes back and says, oh, there are no sides for the day. So I went up to Paul and Chris, uh, and I said, there aren't any sides for the scenes. 
And they said, oh, well, we thought you could just do them the way you did them last week. <laughs> I said, so nobody, nobody wrote out what we were doing last week? They said, no. So um, that was trying to then – so literally the stuff we were doing on the set was was kind of a, an extension of the improvisation that we that we did the week before. I want you to continue to do them once a year forever. Like that's very important to me. Well, I haven't I, seen any of the later ones to be frank. However, it, I think it's so great that they continue that like there that you like it's like going to summer camp for you or something like uh, once every two years yeah, you show up on set. Yeah, it was all right. It was it's you know, it's it's sequels are kind of, you know, weird. You're you're in, it's it's all very enticing because everything goes up, all the money goes up and everything else and that's that's great. American Reunion, the last one, the last feature <clears throat> that was done was I think done with the same degree of um you know, taste if you can use that word for American Pie, but it was it it had the same sensibility as the very first one. The the um, they they really tried to uh, keep, yeah, keep to do it right to, to do it right and bring back all the characters which they did. Um, but you know the kids now. I think the next one will be you know Jim's dad has the big stroke. <laughs> That's the one I can't wait for. Eugene Levy, thank you so much for taking all this time to be on Bullseye. It was so great to get to talk to you. Uh, well, this was a lot of fun. It was fun driving through uh, rush hour traffic and on a Friday <laughs> at 5 o'clock. i got to say, it was a lot of laughs. Thank you, Eugene. Thanks. Eugene Levy, everybody. Schitt's Creek, again, S-C-H-I-T-T. We have to say that is wrapping up its fourth season right now on the Pop Network. It just got renewed for a fifth. If you haven't watched any of it, you can stream the first three seasons on Netflix now. Every week on Bullseye, we like to leave you with a cultural recommendation from me. It's called The Outshot. The Museum of Modern Art in San Francisco, SFMOMA, is full of works by legendary artists. Picasso and Miro and Rauschenberg and, you know, all of them. But when I was there the other day, I didn't get caught up looking at a painting or a sculpture or whatever. What punched me in the gut was something else. It was a Xeroxed photo of a cockatiel, just Xeroxed on regular printer paper. And written next to the picture of the bird in Sharpie, it said, Help. My name is Baby, and I miss my home. It's just a simple lost bird poster. Please call 487-0101 if you find or see Baby. We miss him. It wasn't a faux flyer. It was a real flyer pulled off a lamp post, maybe 20, 25 years ago by an artist named Rigo 23. He grew up watching American Westerns in Portugal. And when he moved to San Francisco, he was struck by the flyers that surrounded him. I couldn't quite wrap my head around it. What does it mean? So I picked it up because I thought it was so unique. And then I saw another one and another one. I just started collecting them. 
But was this such, such a peculiar evolution from, you know, let's try and catch, capture this criminal or somebody that has somehow, you know, caused harm to the collective and we're giving a reward for whoever finds him or her and in a short amount of time to see that replaced by, um, I lost my bird. <laughs> he must have lived in my neighborhood, the one I grew up in. One flyer is for a bird named Speak. Gray and white, white face, very friendly. Speak flew down my block, down Guerrero Street, past my mom's old place, headed towards 15th. A parakeet, blue with a yellow head, was lost around 21st in Valencia, down by the bike shop, where they fixed up my bike for free when I was a kid. I remember these posters, just from wandering around the neighborhood, just trying to get out of the house going to the Salvation Army, or K&M Liquors, for now and laters. Even when I was young, I could feel how beautiful those posters were. Lost parakeet, says one. Tame, sweet, much loved and missed. I mean, here's the thing. Once they're gone, I don't think birds come home. From the back porch of my mom's apartment, you could see huge flocks of bright green parrots land in the big old palm trees. They were escapees, much loved and missed. And inevitably, as I was standing there in the museum, looking at these reminders of home and reminders of loss, my mind turned. Because I lost my home in my teenage years. As money pushed the neighborhood out of the neighborhood, I lost the streets I used to walk for comfort when my adolescence got the better of me. One poster was for a lost parrot, un loro perdido, that belonged to Jorge and Susana. Mi compañero precioso y maravilloso de los trece años, it says. And in English, my pet and friend for 13 years, Gray Angel. It reminded me of the sign my mom had in her window when I was a teenager. It said, Viente años residente orgulloso de la misión. Twenty years proud resident of the mission. Printed by the Mission Anti-Displacement Coalition. In vain, I guess. Lost, small parrot, yellow and red, answers to precious. Reward for Sarah's safe return. This bird has a broken leg. Lost duck, please do not try to catch him. He'll just fly away. The posters Rigo 23 collected are on the wall in the MoMA. You can go see them there. You can find them on the internet. Don't bother going to the old neighborhood, though. It isn't there anymore. But if... You see Pepe, a yellow-collar macaw, lost Saturday, September 6th at 9 a.m. at the corner of 21st Street and Fair Oaks. Please call. I'm lost without him. That's my outshot. That's all for this week's Bullseye. Bullseye is recorded at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters, overlooking MacArthur Park 
in beautiful Los Angeles, California, where we had a 5.3 earthquake. I have to say, I was at my home office and did not feel it at all, but it was our colleague Kira's first earthquake, so congratulations to Kira. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. He had help from Casey O'Brien. Our production fellows at MaximumFun.org are Jesus Ambrosio and Shana Deloria. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. Special thanks to NPR's Mark Memmott for guidance on how to say Eugene Levy's TV show's name on the radio. That's M-E-M-M-O-T-T. That guy is the best. I really enjoy sending him gross things and swear words and asking how much of them are legal to say on the radio. All our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Our theme was recorded by the Go Team and provided to us by Memphis Industries Records and the band themselves. They're on tour. Actually, a listener just posted uh, on our Facebook page a video of them performing the song that is our theme song on their U.S. tour, and it was awesome. If you'd like to hear any of our past programs, all of them are free. Go to MaximumFun.org. And while you're at it, check out the Bullseye page on Facebook. It's more than just phone video recordings of the Go Team performing in, like, I think maybe you want to say it was Houston. Can't remember. Plus, we will give you pieces of great Bullseye interviews, past and present, and just stuff we think is interesting going on in the world of arts and culture. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. NPR. 